No one holds command over me. No man, no god, no prince. What is a claim of age for ones who are immortal? What is a claim of power for ones who defy death? Call your Daniel Hunt. We shall see you I drag along to listen to this show, part of the Goblin Broadcast Network at GBNCom.com. Follow the Path, the Bears Grove Podcast. Adult-level discussion of role-playing as a storytelling art at bearsgrove.com. Do you want RPG podcasts? Well, do you? Try rpgpodcasts.com. Be welcome to the Bears Grove, number 40. This is part one of the interview with Phil Brucato. It's going to run about 30 minutes or so. The interview as a whole is about two hours worth, so it's going to take four episodes to get all of this whole thing out. But I was trying to go through and cut it, and at the end of everything, uh, although I was able to shave some stuff off, I I really thought that um, it might be best just to go ahead and release these in four episodes. So you're about to get four episodes of The Bear's Grove, one after the other, pretty quickly. Because I don't want to keep you in suspense uh, from week to week. But at the same time, I don't want to cause your um, pod uh, catcher to choke on one large, long download. So we get the best of both worlds. Um, Let's see. News and notes. Um, I've got another interview in the can with... uh, uh, Tailwind Woodruff. Tailwind was wonderful to give me an interview. And after that, I will be talking about my uh, Game Chef participation. And I'm going to try and find some people out there who are Game Chef participants who want to come on and talk about their experiences. So that should be fun. I was in Game Chef this year. The Game Chef, Game Chef is... The design phase is over, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I created a game called Dream Flyers! Exclamation point. Uh, there's an exclamation point at the end. You have you can't leave can't leave that off. Um, and it has so far gotten a very good review, which makes me a little afraid that the other person who's going to do that do the review will probably lean harder on me as a result. So I don't know what's going to happen, but um, at any rate, uh, it looks it looks fun. I'm sorry this has been so many uh, weeks between episodes. In truth, I've been doing this work to get the uh, interviews in the can, and I've had some lovely distractions like a wonderful house guest uh, and a couple of other things that are pretty good distractions. And, um, oh yeah, Torchwood, <laughs> second season. I, um, I fell into that. So I've got very good excuses, but ultimately they're all just excuses, and I'm glad to get this out to you. So what you'll hear is the first part, and then shortly after that we'll get the next part and we'll continue so hope you enjoy um and that's all enjoy 
P.S. My cat does not observe the rules about playing, not making noise when I'm trying to podcast, so I apologize for that. I'd like to welcome to our virtual studio Phil Brucato, a good friend and co-worker from the past and a fellow traveler along the road. Phil, welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Sam. It's really, really good talking with you again. It's good to be... Oops. <laughs> As I said, there, there's moving going on in the house today, and, and so somebody apparently just dropped something on the floor upstairs. But it's really, really good talking to you, and it's really good you know, catching, catching back up. Uh, for for my part, for the uh, for the listeners, Sam and I were were pretty tight back in the uh, the wolf days, and Sam is one of those people who walks in light. Oh that, wow! Yeah, that's you, amazing. You really, Thank you. You're welcome. You're just one of those one of those people with with whom I, I, I one of those people whom I've known really understands uh, understands the sacred both in and outside of creativity, and I've always. I've always really appreciated that. In fact, in uh, in the, the two installments of a three-installment series that I'm working on for New Witch Magazine on paganism, gaming, and magic, um, Sam's been mentioned in the last two installments as one of those people who creates with intention and really, really making a point of making sure that people know the difference between someone who creates an interactive entertainment because it's fun and someone who creates an interactive entertainment with a uh, with a deeper sacred purpose and Sam is definitely one of those people. Well, thank Hello. you. That's <laughs> awesome, Phil. I've always been impressed by um, just about everything you've done and certainly uh, when you have been given your uh, druthers and allowed to do the creative things that you really wanted to do, it's become clear that uh, you just blow up. You just hit it out of the park, essentially. And uh, I mean, you can look at Deliria if you want to, uh, uh, and see that all over the place. You can look at Mage: The Ascension Second Edition. You can look at. I mean, I'm just going on and on. Ultimately, you know, basically back at you. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. and that's really, really both fortunate. I, I've been very fortunate with, and I think that. People whom I've worked with have been fortunate with that as well. Is that people had a, a people had some perceptions back when I left White Wolf that it was because the company was telling me what to do. And on that, I like to set the record straight. I have almost never worked with with a client who told me what I could and couldn't do. In fact, the only the only time that I was told you can't do that or you shouldn't do that was when I was working on some Star Wars stuff for, uh, for Lucas Arts and West End Games. Um, but and that's I have almost, license, yeah, that's because of, their yeah, license, exactly. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, you're talking about a multi-billion dollar intellectual property with lots mm-hmm. of established stuff that made perfect sense. But, but no, in terms of White Wolf always gave me, including on my most recent project for changing breeds, almost always gave me complete creative freedom. And that's been, that's been good for me. It's been for them. It's been good for the fans and it's been good for the, uh, for the projects. And yeah, that was, I wanted, I wanted to set the record straight on that because some people have, have, some people have questioned that it's never a problem with us. Yeah. And uh, at the same time, uh, when you're, when you're both writing and developing your own stuff, you can, and your own, you're publishing your your own stuff. There are things you mm -hmm. can do and try that you couldn't normally do. I I don't think, I mean, absolutely. 
So to, I, I see what you're saying, though. And, and about White Wolf, I mean, you and I both have sort of – we sort of went away from the fold. We came back uh, for, one, for, for some quantity of Kent coming back. Um, and I think both right now, uh, although you know, I, I've said in the podcast before that I have bad memories and I have good memories, I choose to look at the good memories and release the bad memories ultimately. And uh, there's still some emotion there, obviously. I can feel it right now. But uh, I think that, um, you know, ultimately uh, when I asked White Wolf just recently if they would be okay with me uh, reading some of my old World of Darkness short stories for a podcast just for free to release them as free, uh, you know, creative commons, they said they would let me. And, and you know, to me, that kind of says – Okay, well, we're back to a place mm-hmm. where we're, you know, we're in sync together, um, and yeah. I'm I'm really happy about that. And I know that you, you know, have something to say about that as well. Well, um, one of the things that I realized things, it's probably no secret that things got really, uh, that things got really crazy and, and occasionally acrimonious with White Wolf back in the late '90s. With pretty much everybody, there there was a period where a lot of the uh, the old creators were were virtually at war with the old management, and I think Mike Tinney coming in as CEO had a lot to do with things getting better there. Just all of us growing as adults, and we were all in our twenties back in the White Wolf days. Some of us mm-hmm. were even teenagers, mm-hmm. and with all of us growing growing and maturing, I think that had a lot to do with it. something I really. I'd realized that when uh, when Mike came into uh, when when uh, when Mike came into being the CEO that people even people who were still with the company started reaching back uh, to you know to to heal some of the old breaches when uh, when Deliria came out Mike had come over to uh, the Laughing Pan booth and he and I had a really nice conversation and he congratulated me on on uh, on on the project and on the product. And seems a little bit confused by by uh, by how well it was doing. Uh, that's that's a whole other subject, which I'll probably get into later about um, Deliria's initial rapturous success and quick descent in the marketplace. But um, uh, he, when uh, when it first came out, it was doing extremely well, and Mike congratulated me on that. And uh, it was about two and a half years ago now. I think I was at a a party in uh at origins and i was sitting at a bar and a, a beer comes sliding across the bar to me you know like in a movie or something and it's rich <laughs> thomas and uh. we, we end up having like an hour-long conversation about you know just healing up old wounds and he's like you know man yeah, we miss you we need to have you back i'd love to work with you again and stuff and so last year we made that happen and we awesome. all seem to be pretty happy with, with the results on changing breeds and whether or not I, you know, continue working with them on stuff again or not, as far as I'm concerned, all of the, uh, the old blood is, you know, the, all the bad blood is old blood at this point. But I've really noticed that white wolf has made an effort. The people who are there you know, in charge now have made an effort to heal the old breaches. And I, I really appreciate that on their part. Yeah, let's let's talk a little bit, if you will, about the uh, about the Deliria period and the things that you were doing around that time, and and tell us a little bit more about that. Okay, well, to start with, one of the reasons I left White Wolf was because I 
I'd originally started as a short story writer and journalist during the the period that I was working on staff with White Wolf. I was turning out between one or working on between one to two books a month for almost seven years. And I turned around and realized at one point that almost nothing I had done was mine, that everything I did belonged to other people. And that was starting to really bother me. And so after I left White Wolf, I went through about a year where I couldn't write hardly anything. Uh-huh. where my voice had become so inextricably wrapped up in the world of darkness that I needed mm-hmm. to find it again. Uh, I needed to find out where my voice was then, as opposed to, you know, the voice that I'd either culture, cultivated with White Wolf or that I'd cultivated or that I'd been cultivating to the point where I started working with White Wolf, you know, um, at that point eight years earlier. And that, that sounds so incredibly familiar. Uh, it happened to me too, just like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, it's, it's okay. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I kind of got that impression. That, and I think I think that happened with a lot of people, even uh, even Andrew and Bill, when they formed their their company when um, Fading Suns first came out. It was very obviously from the guys who gave you Vampire and Werewolf. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when I, I had the idea for uh, for Laughing Pan, uh, which, which actually ties into the name I usually go by these days is Sater. Uh, S-A-T-Y uh, or Sater Blade, which um, actually in some levels I can I can thank uh, Nikki Ray and Jackie Cassata for. Hmm. Uh, back when we were working on uh, when when we were working on Changeling, they had turned me on to the song uh, "The Return of Pan" by uh, by the Waterboys, from which the term "Immortal Eyes" came from, hmm. and from which that term came. And in that song in which uh, Mike Scott talks about, sings about the, the tension between the Christian aspects of his personality and the pagan aspects of his personality, um, I felt a, a really strong accord. I had been, as someone who is very fond of and very, in, and, and very into Jungian psychology and the aspects, I found a lot of guidance and power in looking at my inner aspects, giving them names, giving them faces and embodiment. And I'd found the tension throughout the 90s between my what I called my night aspects, which were, you know, sacrifice and more, you know, nobility and morality and caretaking and, and, you know, the, the warrior protector and my more perverse, uh, rambunctious, sexual, rebellious, um, passionate aspects, which for a while I had embodied as the vagabond, but the vagabond didn't really sound right. When I, heard the song, The Return of Pan, suddenly it clicked in, bang, it's a satyr. Hmm. And suddenly, the knight and the satyr, bang, there it was. And so, a couple of years, shortly after I left White Wolf, and I'd started referring to that aspect of, of, of me as the satyr, I, I had joined a, a pagan group, and I wanted to have an interesting name. I never really liked my given name, to be honest, Phil Brucato. Um, I stuck with it, because as a kid, um, I wanted to, I wanted people to know, you know, that this guy that people had picked on when he was younger was now a successful book, but I never really liked my name. If I'd come up with Seder years earlier, that would have been the name I'd been writing White Wolf. As it was, that name came to me just as I was parting ways with White Wolf. And 
when I heard the return of Pan, he suddenly, he had a face, he had a name, that aspect was right there. And so when I was looking for a name, oh, shortly after I left White Wolf, I should say, I came up with this image, um, which led to the name of Laughing Pan Productions, of the satyr in me laughing at the absurdity of my situation, of the world, of White Wolf, of me, of just a lot of things in my life, just, you know, Pan throwing back his head and laughing at the ridiculousness of it. And that's why I came up with Laughing Pan. Uh, I've mentioned this to Mark Jackson, who drew this just marvelous picture of it, um, of, of Pan as a green man laughing in a uh, circle by a, by a weave of Rowan. And um, my then partner, Wendy, made it into, a, she bought me a tattoo of that design. And that wow. design also became, it gave the name and the, uh, the service mark to Laughing Pan Productions. Since it's on my shoulder blade on the left-hand side, <laughs> <laughs> since it's on be... my shoulder blade, when I joined the Pagan Group, I started going by the name Seder Blade, which also was my name when I, start return, when I, I started going back to Burning Man. I'd started going to Burning Man in the mid-90s, stopped because of um, Dragon Con, a, a conflict with Dragon Con, and then started going again in the early, uh, around the turn of the millennium. So more people and more people knew me as Seder or as Seder Blade, and, you know, had Laughing Pan Productions and such, and a conversation that Mark and I had around 1999, we were talking kind of, of sardonically about White Wolf at that point. What are they going to do when the millennium turns? I said, you know, the vampire was very much the archetype of the 1990s. And, so, and he says, what do you think is going to be the archetype for the, for the new millennium? And I said, the fairy. It's going to be about change and the strange but recognizable other and about magic and possibilities. I was proved 100% dead on right with that. And so going back to Deliria and, and Laughing Pan. Um, and wait, I had, I just, is, which yeah. mark was that? Which mark are you talking about? Mark Jackson. Mark The artist Mark Jackson. Okay, okay. Mark Jansen. Okay. Mark, Mark and I have been close friends and since the early 90s and he and I <laughs> we call each other uh, the twin sons of different mothers because we're very much physically mirror images of one another on a lot of levels we're about the same height same build we both have goatees glasses now I have short hair uh, I used to have long hair but it's short now um, he's white or rather he's black I'm white we dress the same way we talk the same way we have a lot of the same opinions and we collaborate beautifully he's a visual artist who who doesn't write I'm a writer who can't do things visually and we have a wonderful creative synergy that continues now when in the mid 90s we both started getting restless with just doing world of darkness stuff we came up with a uh, with a comic uh, comic book called Golgotha we came mm. up with a number of characters Autumn Brimstone Green Malachi Fortune um, Lucian oh okay they 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 all existed in this this post millennial uh, this post millennial world where everything was a post millennial America where everything was great if you had a good credit rating and if you were you know down with the system and if not then your credit rating would be taken away and you'd be forced to to live in this these barter towns basically uh, and Golgotha was was the name of, of one particular barter town that was run by Brimstone Green. Later on, when and all of this stuff does come together, when uh, some uh, 
my, my now former business partners, Kevin DeVico and, um, and um, Matt Wood, came and uh, approached me in 2000 about doing a, uh, an RPG based on the works of Neil Gaiman. I was like, I would love to, but I've worked on licensed properties, and frankly, it sucks. Why not do something of our own? And they were like, something in mind. And that's where all of the stuff that I've been talking about, the, the fairies you know, being the new millennium, my frustration occasionally at White Wolf with having to do everything being down, everything being dark, everything being miserable, and everyone loses in the end, my frustration with that. Um, my desire to do something that was defiantly hopeful, uh, which the, the tagline for Deliria came out of another conversation with Mark, um, but uh, to do something that was similar yet, that was similar in certain ways, but that was very different in tone, that's when I, I pitched them Deliria. And in Deliria, I recycled some of the characters and some of the ideas we'd originally come up with for Golgotha, made it less gothy and more urban tribal, which was something that I, I got into and have continued to be fascinated by Harajuku youth culture, um, the, the Burning Man, um, creative, you know, cultural creatives, the internet, um, polyethnic fashions, um, the polyethnic people, you know, with, with more mm-hmm. and more quote-unquote interbreeding between different ethnicities and how that's been, you know, literally reshaping the world, literally reshaping America, much to the, uh, to the fear and revulsion of, 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 of cultural fundamentalists. And all of those things came together in Deliria. And the, the tagline for that came out of another conversation I'd had with, with, uh, with Mark, in which I said, I'm sick of despair. I'm sick of I'm, I'm sick of apathy that's trite you know people say i'm being rebellious by by looking at the dark side man i'm like fuck it that's fashionable hope is the bravest rebellion now and that was the tagline for deliria the log line the thing that became its inspiration was hope is the bravest rebellion mm-hmm. and with that i pitched the idea of an urban fantasy uh setting that was inspired by Gaiman, inspired by DeLint, inspired by Francesca Lea Block and Emma Bull and the Harajuku youth culture and, and the internet and all of these other things coming together. And that's, I pitched it to Deliria. My partner said, uh, the guys who wanted to hire me said, do you want to be a partner? And I said, yeah, let's do this. So we did. Wow. And so uh, six months later, they had Deliria. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish it had been that simple. Now, once I, I had a, a huge wish list, but like I said, when I came up with Deliria, I was in the middle of a, a dry spell where I, mm. like everything I wrote came out like White Wolf. Mm-hmm. And at that point, at that point in time, for a, re- a number of reasons of, of things I just really don't want to go into, I was feeling very bitter and angry toward White Wolf. And that anger and bitterness was coming out in my writing, and I didn't want it to anymore. And it took Deliria for me to purge that. Uh, because even though there are certain thematic elements that are similar, I mean, I helped shape the world of darkness and it helped shape me. Uh, though there were a lot of things that were thematically similar, it was distinctly different in tone. Um, unfortunately, around the time that I partnered up with uh, with Kevin and Matt and the time that I started working on Delirium, my partnership with 
um, my partnership with Wendy began to deteriorate and eventually led to divorce. Meanwhile, one of my other partner, my, my business partners was getting divorced as well. And that, that really threw things creatively and business wise for us. And we had a number of false starts business wise, um, in terms of just getting things off the ground and getting Deliria written. And though I started working, I started brainstorming on Deliria in 2000, started writing it in 2001. It was 2003 before it finally went to press. And on most levels, I'm very, very happy with it. Um, there are some things I can go into that in a minute that I would definitely love to do or love to have done differently. But when Deliria finally came out, after all of the setbacks and, and things, uh, it was originally it was it was originally um, greeted with just an astonishing success, and then a, a, a shocking apathy. The success huh. part was we we premiered it at, at uh, DragonCon 2003 with no pre with with uh, with, with no pre. Um, uh, pre-publicity with no marketing because we didn't have any money for it due to some of the setbacks. We we had thirty thousand dollars embezzled from us by a uh, mm. by a, a, a partner, and that mm. was it, it. It has eventually sort of been resolved in courts, but it it totally wrecked our cash flow and and our morale that process. But in any case, by the time when Deliria came out, though it had no pre-publicity, we sold over 350 copies in three days or four days. Mm-hmm. And it, we, we waited at that point. We, we thought, well, the, uh, considering all these people have grabbed it, the distributors will love it. The distributors completely, with one exception, Blackhawk Games, completely shut us out. Because in wow. 2003, D20 was king. Right. And our, the first reaction of, of a number of distributors was their quote. This is a direct quote from, from a representative uh, at that point from Alliance, I believe. It doesn't have enough big tits and big guns to uh, appeal to the 14 year old boys who drive this market. Um, you can't see my face, but I'm wincing. Uh-huh. So <laughs> I'm is wincing. the guy that I know. The guy that I know now, who who most recently worked for Alliance, he and I were on a a panel two weeks ago, or a couple of panels two weeks ago at NorwestCon. When he heard that, he said, who said that? I said, I don't remember his name. He's like, I would fire somebody who said something like that about a new release. Mm. But, uh, you know, he wasn't the person we knew, you know, six years ago when it came out. And so in any case, the distributors greeted it with total apathy. They just said, no, it's not D20. Nobody wants anything. It's not D20. Six months later, when D20 had bottomed out, the reason they were giving us was, nobody's buying RPGs anymore. RPGs are dead. Right. Meanwhile, Blackhawk Games Blackhawk Games took a chance on us, and little by little, we started getting into a handful of retail uh, outlets. But what we did, when we couldn't, we could not get into stores. Uh, most stores we went to to hand sell the game wouldn't touch it because it wasn't uh, it wasn't supported by uh, distributors. So what we ended up doing was we gathered what money and energy we had left, and we went from convention to convention. In 2004, uh, my partners, myself, and a handful of, of volunteers went to every convention we could reach for almost almost every week. One of us was at a festival or convention from spring 2004 to fall 2004 
And during that time, word began to spread about Deliria. Every time we would show up at a convention, including Origins, including Gen Con, we would sell out. And mm. finally, at the fall of 2004, the distributors came to us and said, we'll take it. At which point, we didn't have money to produce supplements. So that's basically what happened. Uh, by the time we got a supplement out in summer of 2005, um, enthusiasm for it had waned. My partners and I were fighting about various things. Uh, there was a, an audience hungry for Deliria, and I produced a second supplement, which has remained in the can ever since, because unfortunately, due to some disagreements between my partners and I, nobody currently has the legal rights to publish it, so it's sitting in limbo until one of us, well, until I get the money to buy everything back out from under my former partners. Wow. So, yeah, that's, that's in, a, in a nutshell, the story of Deliria. Um, it was greeted with, with one exception on RPG.net. Uh, it was greeted with four- and five-star reviews everywhere it went, but the distributors wouldn't touch it until it was too late. So we, we had a supplement, actually, which was nominated for it and won honorable mention in the Any Awards, uh, a second supplement on ice, and the just the, the, the years of hitting the road and you know pressing the flesh and handing the book out to people at conventions completely burned me out on doing stuff with Delirium, pretty much game, burned me out on the gaming industry in general until mm. the, the fateful glass of beer and, uh, and Rich Thomas going, you know, come, and, come back and work with us, which got me back into the, the game, so to speak. You, you did put a lot of effort and energy. I mean, I've got a copy of the game that you actually that you gave me, and um, I was uh, continuously blown away. I mean, you, you keep uh, turning these pages, and every page has something uh, pretty much amazing to look at. And uh, it's just a luscious book. Um, I I think that, you know, you'll you'll eventually work this out with them. And I'm, I'm sure that at some point in the future, somebody will want to uh, take up the the uh, gauntlet, as it were, and, and do some more delirious stuff. I know that there is a strong uh, a presence online. There's a lot of people out there who are still playing the game and still want more. So, and of course, then there are people who are living delirium. I think sometimes talking to you, <laughs> yeah. So that you know that you live with people and you are people who uh, who live in delirium on a daily basis. Almost, it just seems there that was, way. Yeah. Well, very much so. There was one of my realizations that unfortunately was a realization that years later. Um, contributed to the to the breakdown of my marriage and definitely contributed to my leaving White Wolf and, and my life since then. Um, when I wrote the Cult of Ecstasy tradition book, uh, people had been jokingly referring to me as the cultist of ecstasy for a while at that point, but I'd originally hired somebody who will remain nameless to do the book because I, I trusted that she'd do a good job with it. She completely dropped it on its head, and I ended up throwing out everything she had written and writing the book itself in two and a half weeks of almost almost stream of consciousness. And when I got done with the book, stepped back from it, I realized that what I was writing was the truest thing about myself before or since that I'd ever written. Hmm. And I realized that I really... On a lot of levels, I desperately wanted to do what um, uh, what Cassie does in um, in Cult of Ecstasy, 
and that as long as I was working 60, 70, 80 hour weeks working for somebody else, um, that I wasn't achieving that, you know, mm-hmm. that I might be running around with a, with a motorcycle jacket and hair half down, halfway down my back, but that I was not, I was not living the kind of life that I wanted to be living. And that when I got married, and this is absolutely no slight to, uh, to, to my former wife, whom I still love very much, um, I realized that I, being a husband was not part of the life that I wanted and needed to be living, that I it was not living the life that was true to me. Mm. So uh, I ended up over the process of, of years throwing out, going going through, reflecting heavily and throwing out the aspects of my life that didn't feel real to me and eventually came to a life that, although on a financial level was pretty damn poverty-stricken, was much more true to who I am mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. You know, being embracing Seder is part of that. Although I'm, I, I more refer to myself now as the Seder night because those two aspects that were at war with each other throughout the nineties have become reconciled um, through, this is somebody I wanted to do a shout out here for my, my dear and my dear and beloved, precious um, Francesca Gentile who also has a, uh, a podcast on the, the network uh, Sex and Kama Sutra. Uh, Francesca and I partnered up um, after, uh, after Wendy and I had, uh, had, had broken up as, as a husband and wife. And though Francesca and I as lover, Francesca and I did not stay lovers. We remained very, very close and very dear friends. And through her, we've, through my relationship with her, and, oh, well, our relationship with each other, we have learned just a phenomenal amount about communication, about sacred bonds, about being true to yourself, living true to yourself, mm-hmm. and being a being. You know, the the term that flickered through my mind, and this actually is accurate, is a sacred deviant. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean mm-hmm. I don't mean a deviant um, in terms of you know running around going yeah let's do everything evil. Not at all, but a deviant mm-hmm. as somebody who deliberately chooses to run counter to, to the dominant culture. And in the case of a sacred deviant, running counter to the dominant culture in a constructive way. And that's something Francesca and I, my partner, uh, my partner Sandy, and, and the people whom I've worked with, including my partners on Deliria, have very much chosen to do. So yes, you're right. In many aspects, we do choose to and very much do live in deliria that we are as, as uh, one reviewer called it uh, picaresque um, figures who even if we don't have much money we are living the truth or our truth in any case and trying to share that in a positive way with people which is something my writing has been very much a part of it's been a, a sacred mission especially since mage uh, i write about in in new witch magazine that i considered mage a sacred trust and, and I did. You were very much a part yeah. of that, by the way, Sam. Oh, you were you. very much a part of that. You've been listening to an episode of the Bears Grove Podcast. The Bears Grove Podcast is brought to you under a Creative Commons license attribution. No derivatives, no commercial use. You can find out more about the Bears Grove Podcast at bearsgrove.com. You can email me directly with feedback at bearsgrove at gmail.com. Thank you very much. The music you'll be listening to now is 
from Hannah. It's called Rain and White Jasmine. <laughs> 